Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. A congressionally chartered panel of defense acquisition experts today delivers the third of three promised sets of recommendations for modernizing how DOD buys. Some things DOD can do on its own authority, others will require Congress to act. For a summary of the final report and what comes next, I spoke with David Drapkin, the chairman, and Charlie Williams, a commissioner of the Section 809 panel. In Volume 3, which we have just released, we talk about uh, the bold recommendations for readily available, and Charlie led the team that developed these recommendations. And then we talk extensively about how to implement enterprise-wide portfolio management. Review for us Sections 1 and 2. Those have come out over the last couple of years, and you've already delivered to Congress and by extension, the Defense Department, close to 100 possible recommendations for reforming procurement. We've actually delivered uh, the two volumes that you refer to, but before that, in May of 2017, we delivered an interim report which which had five recommendations in it. Volume one of our report was actually issued last January on the 31st, And the volume one introduced to Congress and the Secretary of Defense are recommendations via something we call the dynamic marketplace. And then it also talked to a number of specific areas like commercial items, information technology purchases for business systems in the Department of Defense, and others. Volume two uh, continued our discussion of the dynamic marketplace and then introduced the concept of Uh, enterprise-wide portfolio management, taking uh, capabilities that the department buys and treating it as as a group based on what they can do versus individual uh, program by program, which is how we uh, do it today. Okay, let's get to those bold recommendations. Charlie, what uh, summarize them for us and what makes them so bold? Yeah, Tom, thanks. Uh, Let's talk about this one uh, called Readily Available, and we framed it uh, from the standpoint of uh, what we call a dynamic marketplace, as we went out and talked to industry, small businesses, uh, uh, businesses that don't do business traditionally with the Department of Defense and uh, uh, traditional uh, businesses that do business in the department, uh, we recognize that while we have these burdens that challenge the the, the industry, we also know that uh, one of the big ones that people don't always focus on is this issue of time, how long it takes to address uh, solicitations, how long it takes to provide proposals, and ultimately how long it takes for the uh, contractor to know uh, if they're going to win a uh, solicitation or not. And recognizing those time constraints and those burdens, we wanted to do something. We wanted to create a framework that eases those burdens on industry. So we call it uh, that dynamic marketplace. Uh, and we specifically think about this thing called readily available. And in our recommendation, you'll find is going to consume what today uh, we think of as commercial far part 12 kinds of uh, purchases and any and, and look at it from the standpoint of is it available to the to the general public? Is it available in the marketplace? Are market are market prices driven as a result of uh, advertisement? And as a result of that, can we ease the burden of the process and procedural stuff that increases the amount of time that's involved in that that marketplace? Well, let me ask you this: If something is readily available and can be rapidly acquired relative to the standard system, are such things? is your thinking available that can help the warfighter? Because you think of commercial items available may or may not be something useful in combat. 
Absolutely. And when you think about readily available, often folks think of the very low end stuff, but really it cuts across a significant set of products and services that the warfighter requires and uses on a a daily basis to accomplish their mission. But I would say there's another way of thinking about this to the extent that we can take uh, what sometimes represents maybe even 90 percent of the actions inside of the department's acquisition business to the extent that you can take those actions and and reduce the burden that it allows those people with those uh, uh, very complex actions that they have to do to spend more time in those areas. And so I think this is really a comprehensive view of the the whole marketplace. And if you can take the readily available stuff and uh, reduce the time spent on that, you can spend more time in the more complex work. So would this require to buy more readily available things faster? It sounds like it requires maybe a, you're recommending a mindset change, really, on the part of defense acquisition people. I think that's true. I, we think of this as revolutionary. We think of, think of it as a cultural change as well. And I think it's a to the extent that the Congress adopts the statutory requirements that uh, make this happen, I think it'll be a win-win for the department and the industry. All right. So what is the specific recommendation just simply to use more readily available in marketplaces? That, that, that's that's true. But really, the, the recommendation gets into uh, in consuming up under our, our readily available uh, processes and procedures, what is currently considered commercial, non-developmental item kind of procurements and acquisition. And we think that as a result of uh, that consumption, there are a lot of specific things that go along with it. You, know, you have to uh, assume that uh, we'll be able to take advantage of market-based pricing. You have to assume that we'll be able to take advantage of uh, of uh, reduced uh, processes in the protest business. So there are a lot of things that go up under this recommendation, uh, but it really is about uh, getting to faster uh, procedures for these things that we uh, believe uh, fit in that marketplace. We're speaking with Charlie Williams and David Drabkin, members of the Section 809 panel. And David, does this idea of moving closer into the commercial style marketplace or the commercial marketplace, anything required of Congress to enable this? Or does this recommendation go directly to DOD acquisition? Uh, Tom, our recommendations as uh, they show up in our executive summary and, and even as you look at them as the headings within our report are relatively deceptive because underneath that recommendation are many, many actions which we uh, recommend that Congress and in some cases the SECDEF take to implement the recommendation itself. So for you to get the full flavor of what the changes are for readily available, you really need to read beyond that recommendation because we're talking about changes in many, many things as they apply to readily available, beginning with the definition of competition and moving on to uh, all the issues related to financial matters. One point I'd like to also emphasize is the, 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 the whole driver for us on readily available began with the need to get innovation to the warfighter and our ability to get ahead of our near-peer competitors in acquiring that innovation and then delivering it to the warfighter so it can be employed either as a defensive measure or in response to um, what's being done by, by, well, let's be frank, the Chinese and the Russians. They don't have our rules. While we were doing our research, we had talked to a number of companies who the week before a delegation from China had been to and they'd been talking about buying the company or their production or their intellectual property. And DOD formally didn't even know these companies existed. 
Yeah, and this comes after a couple of years of trying to get to that innovative sort of agility with the DIUX initiative and other initiatives similar to that. And yet it sounds like they really haven't found that nirvana at this point. If they adopt our recommendations, DIUX's mission would probably go back to what it was originally created to do, which is to reach out and find capabilities in the marketplace that DOD didn't know about and could be used by DOD, repurposed by DOD to achieve the mission of our warfighters. Tom, if I, if I could add to that, I, I think one of the things you have to think about is what's scalable. Often what the department does to achieve the agility it needs is to create these one-off kinds of organizations and structures. And while they do great work for the specific purpose that they're designed, uh, they're not scalable. And what we were trying to do as we created this framework is to create a scalable set of processes and procedures that cut across the department's space of work. So you really are trying to make the elephant dance here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask about the other recommendation that's fairly big that uh, David mentioned earlier, and that is portfolio management framework. Portfolio management has been something that, at least on the civilian side of acquisition in the government, has been pushed by several administrations now. How would this apply and what are you recommending and how would it apply in DOD? Uh, the the implementation of the concept of portfolio management outside of the Department of Defense is probably not as close to what's done in the private sector as what we are proposing here. First, we think that our recommendations mirror the best practices in industry today, not just the industry that is devoted to delivering products to the Department of Defense, but the industry that's delivering products every day to everybody else around the world. The global marketplace is huge. And so as we looked how to manage our uh, programs better and how to deliver programs faster, because the key, again, is delivering capability to the warfighter inside the turn of our near-peer competitors, we recommended a change in how we manage programs. Instead of viewing them as individual stovepipes, and we have lots of those individual stovepipes, we recommend that they be grouped together based on the capability they deliver to the warfighter and be managed in a, in a, in a manner that allows the warfighter to speed up the delivery of capability uh, that they need right now versus trying to manage 100, 200 individual programs across the base. We also have a huge focus here that people keep talking about but really don't address, which is, which is on sustainment. Sustainment is huge, and while many programs consider stain, sustainment up front in their in their development, they fail to deliver on the back end. And more importantly, uh, individual program managers really don't become responsible for sustainment through the life cycle of a program. And that results in sustainment being treated uh, as a stepchild, often not having the funds it needs and having to rob those funds from other accounts. So as you look at our approach to portfolio management, one, we try to group these capabilities together across the enterprise. Two, we try to make sure they address sustainment as part of the upfront planning and delivery. And then three, we recommend that they be managed in such a way through this portfolio concept so that capability that the warfighter wants and needs today can be delivered today. Instead of buying yesterday's technology for delivery tomorrow, we want to deliver tomorrow's technology today. 
And with this portfolio management approach, how would that overlay with the fact that the armed services all have their own acquisition functions, all have their own bundles of programs that are unique to them as we try to look to a more purple type of future? Well, uh, we're not talking purple. We're not talking about any of those organizational issues. Those aren't what we're addressing. We're recommending to the departments that they reemphasize their focus on capabilities as opposed to individual program elements and that they manage them across the board. We recommend changes, not just here in Section 2 on portfolio management, but in Section 4 in budget, which would give greater flexibility from the perspective of managing dollars across a portfolio, uh, which would allow things to move faster. Here again, the need for speed is huge. The department, the government as a whole, really doesn't value time very much in the acquisition process. In industry, they value time hugely. And in fact, many things die because they can't make time. And of course, as you know, in the department, virtually nothing dies. You know, I would say, Tom, this is very supportive of the recent changes in the department as they push authorities down to the services. It just sort of says now as you push those authorities down, give them more flexibility to move money around uh, to support the, the needs in that portfolio. In other words, it's more nimbleness, more agility, more speed within the armed services level that could add up to greater departmental-wide Correct. agility and, and speed. But we also have a point. Do uh, a discussion here about the role of OSD in the management of the acquisition portfolios across the department. But but this really takes the first steps that Miss Ellen Lord has taken over at DOD, and this really takes it to the next level. And again, all of this with a view towards trying to mirror and adopt the practices in the private sector, which are allowing companies to be world-class and maintain their competitive edge uh, across the globe. We're speaking with David Drabkin and Charlie Williams, members of the Section 809 panel, which has just released its third and final report to Congress, which chartered the whole thing. And there's a lot here in the acquisition workforce, and that seems to be foundational to almost anything that you're going to recommend if they're going to happen. What are the recommendations with respect to the workforce, and what's going to take what's going to take to get that over the line? Yeah, Tom. Charlie? When we when we started our work, we recognized that acquisition workforce was going to be critical to the work that we did. Uh, we, we waited a little bit just to sort of sort out the things that we were going to focus on, uh, but we always knew that just putting out uh, recommendations relative to process and procedure uh, is interesting, but if you don't have the workforce to support it. So so we started with some recommendations back in our volume two report uh, that talk about the workforce. But in this report, we really get to the heart of the matter, and that is how do you develop and create a professional workforce? And you'll see that we've talked a lot about the DAWIA and the certification process. We believe there's an approach to, to certifying the acquisition workforce that's critically important, but it's different than the way it's done today. We in, in, in want to ensure that there's a workforce that's not only certified, but actually job ready. So that means even though you may carry a certification, level one, two or three certification, does that really mean you're ready to do the job that you're, able, that you're doing today? Uh, we think the system today doesn't support that. It's too focused on the certification piece versus the qualification piece. So, so you'll see that in the, in the uh, work that we've done. Uh, and there are another set of uh, recommendations around the workforce uh, that we believe truly are necessary. And if you don't take them in an integrated, uh, from an integrated 
perspective, you're going to lose pieces. So what we're concerned is that that people pick up bits and pieces. You have to look at the whole set of recommendations to get to what we're trying to do. And yeah, to that a- end, we're going to provide another volume, which we're now... We call we call volume X because we can't figure out what to really call it. A number four might work. Uh, right, but it really isn't a number four because we're not going to make any substantial recommendations. We're going to tie all of our recommendations and that literally over 2,000 pages of work that we've done. We're going to tie it all together as a capstone piece, which we call now volume X, and we'll deliver that. Um, before the 15th of February, which should hopefully help people to view our recommendations as a whole. As Charlie mentioned, you can adopt some of our recommendations, but if you don't look at the whole picture we've provided, you really won't be able to move into that state where we should be faster, we should be bolder, we should be more like the private sector. We shouldn't be inhibited in delivering the capabilities to the warfighters that we're producing here in our own country because of our rules, because of the various processes we put in place. We ought to be able to buy what we need and put it to work right away. Now, the panel was chartered by Congress several NDAAs ago, and now it's completing its work. The way you describe the requirements here of taking this whole thing as a whole with maybe it's going to end up being a couple of hundred specific recommendations for it to be effective, it sounds like that's going to take congressional nudging for something like DOD to be able to take this as a whole. There are some recommendations which we've made which only Congress can can, can uh, adopt. Uh, most of these recommendations deal with statutory changes to provide the flexibility and the agility that DOD needs. That's the Title Ten stuff future. in Volume 2. Well, it's all well, the Title 10 stuff is really in volume two. And now in volume three, you'll also see us discuss how we're going to reorganize Title 10 so that you can figure out what's in it. It's uh, it's never really been reorganized as such uh, since 1947, when the Armed Services Procurement Act was first published. But but it's not just the reorganization. There are specific statutory changes we've which we've recommended, which will allow a change in how, for example, we provide oversight, or which will allow a change in how we manage dollars within the department, not taking away Congress's oversight role, but allowing greater flexibility with greater transparency to Congress. Uh, But they're not just recommendations in here for Congress. We also have specific recommendations in here for the secretary. And a number of our recommendations which we made for Congress, the secretary could implement parts of without waiting for congressional work. I can tell you that we've had a marvelous working relationship with the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee, both the majority and the minority uh, before this uh, new Congress and with this new Congress. Uh, There's a lot of excitement we sense uh, on the Hill for many of our recommendations, and they're debating uh, amongst themselves what they're going to be able to do or not do in their normal legislative cycle. We've also been in close contact throughout this entire process with the Department of Defense. Three of our commissioners are active members of the Department of Defense uh, in the acquisition field. 
We also have had a couple of people from the Department of Defense who are not commissioners, but have participated in the development of recommendations, who've participated in our discussions. So none of what we are proposing is going to be a shock or news to them, even though some of what we're proposing would really require people to do something different, something vastly different than they're doing today. Because it's worth noting that some of the very early recommendations were things that you basically heard from the defense acquisition community that were just the common sense that they had wanted for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, our reach uh, to hear and listen at the early parts of the, the, the panel was significant. And, and it was very important to helping support uh, the work that we did and create the recommendations. So you're right. Uh, we heard a lot of what we are responding to from folks inside of the Department of Defense. Uh, we think a lot of the recommendations will will garner significant support. And in today's point, uh, the Secretary, the Department of Defense can move out on many of these recommendations right away. And we hope that he does. And on delivery of, say, Volume 3 and then Volume X, does that then spell the end of the panel and what happens? Well, the, the panel itself will go out of existence on July 30th of 2019. Uh, that's how long Congress gave the panel to exist. The main portion of our work is done. Now we're working, as I mentioned, on developing Volume X. And um, after we deliver Volume X, we'll be available to help the department on implementation. We'll be available to a uh, work with Congress on the implementation, and will be available to go to associations and other group meetings to explain Volumex to the public. Uh, so uh, I'll close the door along with Charlie and the other commissioners on the 30th of July, and we'll have a few people still working through uh, stuff like uh, Title 10 won't be finished um, until probably July because of the need to literally rewrite, reorganize, which includes rewriting, but no substantive changes to the acquisition provisions in Title X. There are just lots of them. Sure. And has this whole process been fun? <laughs> <laughs> Depends on which day we're speaking about. But, uh, well, you know, the, the interesting thing, Tom, is that I don't think I've ever been surrounded by uh, such a brilliant set of practitioners and experts in this business as the commissioners that I was working with. Uh, we had tremendous uh, dialogue around the table. Uh, we, hey, hey, we debated back and forth. It, 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 this wasn't just sort of throw out a recommendation and everybody supported it. So absolutely, it was fun. It was informative. Uh, and it was just wonderful working with a great set of uh, experts uh, and professionals. Yeah, we considered what some people thought were some really crazy ideas to start <laughs> with. And uh, as we discussed it, and as Charlie said, I mean, look at the people that are on our panels there, they are just exemplary leaders in the acquisition field. Al Berman, one of our commissioners, not only served on the Section 809 panel, he previously served on the Section 800 panel and on the SARA panel with uh, me and D. Uh, so we've got a lot of expertise uh, we talked about a lot of interesting changes. We left a lot on the cutting room floor because we just didn't have the time, even though we've been working for two and a half years, we just didn't have the time to get it all done. But uh, I think we've also uh, realized that, uh, you know, we've been working at it a long time and 
Uh, we've recommended, actually, one of our last recommendations deals with how to carry the work of the panel forward so that every 10 years, Congress doesn't have to create one to look at the process. And um, as you'll read in our recommendation uh, on the, the, the creation of an acquisition center at NDU, which is recommendation number 13, our very last recommendation, uh, we hope that Congress and the department pick up on that, create the center which uh, will provide the opportunity for students in the department, for students in industry, for faculty and others to look at specific issues and inform both Congress and the secretary on changes that are needed to continue to allow the department access to innovation. David Drabkin is the chair and Charlie Williams, a member of the Section 809 panel. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom.